Hello, I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, creator of the Incandescent Radio Network, here with my friend and colleague, Tony Farmer, host of the Black Lives Matter radio show. We are thrilled you are here with us today. So let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the Black Lives Matter radio show on the Incandescent Radio Network. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, the creator of this organization. Thrilled to be here this evening on our Sunday evening podcast with Anthony Farmer, Tony Farmer, who is the host of the Black Lives Matter show, and our guest this evening, M. Quinton Williams. He is an attorney, author, educator, prolific international speaker, former FBI agent, former federal prosecutor, and has held positions as an executive for the NFL and the NBA, if that's not amazing enough. He currently serves as a business advisor, legal expert, and business strategist for companies and individuals in industries ranging from professional sports, entertainment, fashion, and the media, to medical, legal, financial, law enforcement, education, and technology. This amazing man does not miss a trick. He is currently the chairman and CEO of Williams Media and Marketing Group, a Los Angeles-based company. And I'm very excited to learn more about this. He is the founder of Dedication to Community a nonprofit organization with a mission to empower communities around the world by paying it forward through business and responsible societal efforts. So, wow, so cool and so happy to have you on the show. Our first show of 2021, yippee. It is January 3rd and I'm gonna kick it over to you, Tony, so you can have this amazing conversation. Well, thank you, Hope, and thank you, Quentin, for being on our first show to kick off 2021. We're so excited to have you with us. I'm going to jump right in because uh, you and I have a, a wonderful relationship, and, and I look up to you. You have been a mentor, and you've been a, a voice of reason and, and, and wise counsel, so I, I appreciate you and, and so excited to have you on. So uh, I want to talk about uh, athletics, right? As, as Hope mentioned, you have had a lot of jobs. <laughs> you have a lot of positions. And uh, I think of a joke that my, my family and I have. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and every, every now and again, we'll have an opportunity to drive around uh, through the city. And, and I'll say, you know, daddy used to work there and I'll drive another few blocks and daddy used to work there. And, and so they're out there trying to calculate, daddy, how many jobs did you have? <laughs> and I try to explain to them that every job was a building block to uh, take me to another level of something I wanted to do. So I know that your entry point into a lot of what you are doing and have done and have set the foundation to do moving forward is, is, founded around or centers around athletics. Tell us about your, your athletic career and how that built a foundation for where you've gone uh, over, the, over the years. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. This is great. Thank you, Hope, for that glorious introduction. And, and Tony, uh, you are always too kind. I thank you for your friendship. And this is, a, this is my pleasure. Athletics, well, I, I was a schoolyard kid who, who would just play football in the back of PS25 on Warburton Avenue in Yonkers, New York. Never really had organized athletics in my, uh, in, in my uh, orbit as a child because we couldn't afford the $25 to $50 to join. So my friends and I would always just play behind the school. And then when I turned about 13 years old. I was in the eighth grade. My grandparents, my maternal grandparents sprung the $25 to get me to play Pop Warner football. And that was my introduction 
to organized athletics. I've always looked up to athletes, and I think just like millions of kids around the world, billions of kids probably, these are our role models. So when I uh, went out for the Colts football team in Yonkers, New York, I was thinking about how I could become the next Tony Dorsett. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a running back. But uh, I quickly learned the politics of life uh, uh, at that young age because all the running backs, their fathers were the coaches. And I didn't have a father in my household. So my father abandoned my mother uh, before I was even born. So I didn't have the support of a father out there coaching me. So I was placed at the position of nose guard. Um, mm. It was almost the farthest away from the actually carrying the ball <laughs> right, is right. probably the nose guard. Of the <laughs> and even in practice, they didn't allow me to practice as a running back. And I think at times the reason was because they didn't want me to exhibit the skill I had, which would then force them to play me at that position. So I played nose guard and I, I, I played pretty well. I didn't know what I was doing, but I played pretty well. And then when I got in, when I, when we, we won the championship uh, and I went into high school the next year, I, I went out for the JV team. And on the first day of JV, the coach said, the junior varsity team, coach said, uh, what, what do you want to play? What position? And I was stunned that he even asked me the question. <laughs> I was like, what do I want to play? You're not just going to put me a nose guard or tackle or something. And then uh, I said, well, I want to play running back. And he said, okay, uh, go over with the running backs coach. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, that's it? I would have played running back? Uh, because really my, I, I had this deep desire to be the next Tony Dorsett. So they did that. And I started practicing at running back and I was doing fairly well. And that was really the beginning of my athletic career, which then spanned high school where I was an all-state honorable mention all-American. Then I went into uh, college. I was recruited uh, by several colleges and I elected to go to Boston College and I played football with Doug Flutie, got a full athletic scholarship. And, and so through those eight years of playing football and running track, I learned discipline at another level. It really structured my life and helped me for what was to come. Now, memory serves, um, and again, you know, you and I are close, we have a relationship, so I study a lot of, of what you've done trying to carve a path, not just for myself, but those people that I coach and those people that I mentor. You did pretty well in school, right? So, so tell us what it takes to be a successful student athlete in your, in your uh, opinion. Well, you know, I, I wasn't, I was above average student when I was in, the ele in elementary school, um, I figured out very early in my elementary school years that I had a deficit. It was a reading deficit. I wasn't able to read like my friends. Something about the words. I wasn't able to comprehend words the way my friends could. So I could read phonetically like Shakespeare. I, I, I mean, you can never tell, but it's, when I recited it, it was, it, was, it was great, but I didn't know what I was reading. And that lasted throughout my young life into my young adult years, that deficit, and I overcame it. Um, and now I'm a voracious reader. But through those K through 12 years, 
I had to work probably four times harder than my peers. And my peers are, were brilliant. They were really smart kids. I hung around smart kids because I wanted to escape the situation my mother, brother, and I were in, uh, this poverty that we were in. So when I went to, um, I graduated from elementary school as an average student, above average, went to junior high, I was exposed to a different realm of students because my 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 middle school was in another area of Yonkers, it was more of a middle class neighborhood. And the folks who were going to that school were a nice mix of people, but I noticed quickly that there were some really smart kids there that I didn't know. And I started to hang out with them and they, um, they impacted on my life deeply because I was just trying to keep up with them. And in order to do that, with that reading deficit, with the poverty and thinking about eating lunch and am I going to eat today or not, doing all of that, I knew I was going to have to just work harder than them because I didn't understand words the way they did. So I, I just, I worked like four times harder than them. And it worked out because on their coattails, I was able to be an A student, um, even with the re reading deficit. And that prepared me for high school. And in high school, I did the same thing, except I was also an athlete. So I had to combine the two. And I basically didn't go out that much. I didn't, I didn't play on the streets that much. It kept me off the streets, as a matter of fact. And it kept me safe because when I wasn't practicing, I was studying. That's awesome. And it's a great narrative for a lot of the young men and women who aspire to be athletes who may be in a poverty situation and, and want to work them, their way out. So you go to Boston College and those of us who are sports fans uh, know the significance of Doug Flutie and his brother and and that whole team and some of the things that he did and, and the monsters they slayed. And here you are a person who has traditionally had trouble with reading comprehension, what made you decide to go to law school? So I get through Boston College without reading a book. Um, I never really read a full book. I, 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 I fooled everybody. I was not my, I was pretending to be something I wasn't. People thought I was a smart, smart kid. I remember when I came in, um, when I was being recruited at Boston College, the, uh, Evidently, the administration told some of my peers who were football players with me that I was going to be a Rhodes Scholar. I didn't know what a Rhodes Scholar was, but they told me that I got the highest mark, the highest grade of any incoming recruit in like 10 years, something like that, oh. because of my academics. But nobody knew I couldn't read really well right. because right. I'd done so. Well. I graduated number five in my class in high school. They didn't. I was working all the time. I was constantly working. So when I get to college, everything is revealed for me. Okay. Like, because you're at a higher level of competition and right. the fact that I couldn't really read well, it, it was exposed uh, in many ways because my peers were just brilliant people at BC. So I graduate with like almost a 3.0 average. I mean, I was, I was what was considered to be a great student in high school and now I'm a you know, a B student. And the only reason I was a B student is because I'm like working like crazy just to keep up, but I'm not able to comprehend these words. And all the while, um, I have this buddy who's like a big brother to me, Jay Brusman, who's an attorney. And since I was 14, he would say, 
you need to go to law school. You need to go because he's an attorney. You need to go to law. I didn't even know what a lawyer was. I wasn't really raised in an area where there were many lawyers, uh, not at all. And so I didn't get it. He said, you need to go to law school. You need to go to law school. So for about seven years up to the point when I graduated from college, that's what he was telling me. I get a, I graduate from Boston College with a degree in economics. And for the next year and a half, I'm a bouncer at a, at a nightclub because I couldn't get a job. Uh, it was, there were some, we were in some depressed times in, in 1987, 88. There were, uh, there were jobs, but I just didn't qualify. I had a 3.0 average at best. And so I, I wasn't prepared for real world uh, corporate America. And I get this job as a bouncer and it was probably one of the best jobs of my life to tell the truth because I met so many people. It was the largest nightclub in Manhattan. I worked with bouncers who like one of my bouncing friends was Vin Diesel. So these are the kinds of people that I was working with. It was just crazy. He was just a bouncer and a struggling actor at the time. And I met so many great people. And during that time, Jay would say, what are you going to do? You, you cannot be a bouncer for the rest of your life. You've got to do something with your life. And so because he was on me every week, I applied to law school and, the, and I got in. And when I got in, I was like, OK, I'm committed. So I, I went to law school and I was excited about it. I wanted to be an entertainment attorney. Yeah, I didn't know what it was, but I, it sounded good. And so I went to law school at St. John's University School of Law. And you talk about the struggle to read. Oh, I learned to read in law school. That law school did that for me. It taught me to read. It just condensed so much into two and a half years. I had no choice but to figure it out. So whatever deficit I, I was dealing with, I reformatted my brain in some way and I was able to read. By the time I got out, I was able to read at a high level. And then I just kept reading voraciously. And at some point, um, at some point, I remember when I was a bouncer, one of my, my friends, Tom Bradley, who bounced with me, he said, John Kennedy used, John F. Kennedy used to read seven magazines a day, uh, seven newspapers a day, excuse me. And I was like, seven newspapers. I was, that's what I'm going to do. That's, that's going to help me to overcome it. I started reading, but I read maybe four per day. And I think that helped me to overcome. And I just became a voracious reader. Now I, I, I love to read. And that's, I think, what set my course. So Quentin, you are uh, a person that I, who I know to be, uh, who has, possesses a high level of humility. Uh, I will share with you and all of our listeners that uh, once upon a time in another life, uh, I worked for uh, law offices. Uh, I worked for three of them uh, in DC. And in one of those roles, I was a law librarian. People don't understand, you know, they, you say, oh, you know, Tony, you know, I really had to read. They don't understand you had to read law review. You had to write on what you're reading. And these things really set you up to be competitive, to get internships that could really impact the rest of your career. So to hear you say, oh, you know, I had some trouble reading and comprehending. And then I went to law school because, you know, on the advice of a mentor, 
people don't really grasp just how much reading that you have to do, how much writing you have to do uh, in the in the law curriculum as you are uh, going along. And those things count toward whether you get jobs, you know, Wall Street or um, Boston, New York, D.C., wherever. Uh, and, and then there's passing the bar, which is a whole 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 nother thing. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I wanted to bring a little bit of light. <laughs> you were very humble, and I appreciate it about you. But this is some major undertakings that that you have encountered in your life. So then the next chapter is FBI. So tell us how you transitioned from attorney to FBI. Well, I was, uh, I was in my second year of law school and um, they say 10% of the FBI agents in New York City are recruited by the university, St. John's Universities, whether it's a law school, business school or undergraduate. So they, they have a presence. The FBI has a presence on our, on our campus. And I saw some of these, the, the documents that we had to submit and they outlined the requirements. You had to be, a, you had to be in good shape you're gonna shoot some weapons and they like lawyers and accountants. And I said, well, that fits me, but I had this conflict because when I was growing up in Yonkers, New York, it was part of it was during the height of the crack epidemic. And some of my friends were being imprisoned and by the police and, and others were being killed by competition, literally killed. So I, Whenever I saw law enforcement, it was not necessarily because they were coming to help us. It was because they were coming to get us. That's that's the way I perceived it. Yeah. So I wasn't ever thinking about becoming a law enforcement officer. But the more I thought about it, the more I said to myself, you know what? If I see something that is inequitable about the system, maybe I can change it from the inside out. So I applied and I got in. And you talk about a surreal experience, a kid from Auburn Avenue becoming an FBI agent was, was really surreal. And it allowed me to learn the system from the inside out and to affect the system once I did get back into uh, the civilian population, which is where I am now. Having that background really helps me. So that I, I moved from law school to practicing law for about eight months uh, with a law firm while my, my application was outstanding. And then when they called me into the FBI, that was it. I went to the FBI, it was just after Silence of the Lambs had come out. So I was looking at some of the optical courses. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm, 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 this is Jody Foster was just, I, this is me? Um, what, how, did, how did I get here? And so uh, I graduate, they, um, they, they uh, immediately give me my orders to New Haven, Connecticut. I'm undercover for two and a half of my four years and had the experience of a lifetime. And then, um, and then I left only because I was recruited by the U.S. attorney to, uh, to get into another piece of the Department of Justice, the U.S. attorney's office as a federal prosecutor. Uh, you are the author of a book that I think is so important and the inspiration for writing this book had a lot to do with your son. Um, my best friend is a retired police officer, and we grew up in the same neighborhood. I should say the same hood, right? And there are so many lessons that he taught me that I firmly believe kept me out of the negative eye of any police officer to pull, pull me over. There, there is something about 
the procedural nature that you demonstrate when a police officer pulls you over that can diffuse them. And so you, you did an excellent job. It, you know, I read this book, it, it sits in my office. I, I look at it often. Tell us about that book. Tell us what your intent was and, and tell us the message that you want people to take away from it. Sure, well, you know, I, I think the most important thing, the most important message that people should take away from it is, if we can do whatever we can to ensure that law enforcement officers as they approach us feel safe, that'll make us safer. Um, and, and I know that conflicts with the way we should be thinking sometimes. Like some, some people say, well, why do we need to make them feel safe? They're, they're the ones we're paying. They should make us feel safe. I get that. That's true. But right there on that battlefield, if you want to call it a battlefield, but on the street, it's important for law enforcement officers to feel safe because they have the ability to take away your freedom and perhaps to take away your life if they don't feel safe. And, and so we can preempt all of that. We can be very proactive if we just follow a, a few simple rules. And I wrote the book as an essay to my son originally because I was being pulled over a lot by the by the police on I-95 as I was traveling from Charles uh, from Charlotte to New York on business and over the course of 10 years maybe I was pulled over 10 times by state troopers and every time I was pulled over it was over in two minutes and it was over because I knew exactly what to do to make them feel safe mm. and they would let me go and then at some point in time we decided, you know what, what, what I do there needs to be codified in some way for the public. So I was reluctant to do that because I was so busy. But then I thought about my son who was about to be born. And I wrote this essay for him. And it's a 31 page essay. It's really, it wasn't a book. It was an essay to him just because I wanted to teach him how to interact with the police, but even bigger than that, I wanted to teach him how to build relationships in life. Because if you can build relationships with law enforcement, especially during these tense times, that means that you can build any relationship because the relationship between the police and society right now is just so tense. So I said, let me just put this in writing, wrote this essay and then the world imploded with Trayvon and Garner and Michael Brown. And so I released that essay as a book after editing it for public consumption. And that's what you have. You have the book that was originally the essay for my son, because all I'm doing every day, and I have a daughter too, who's 18 months younger, all I'm doing is thinking about how do I save their lives? How do I allow them to be successful individuals, to meet their potential, but first, I want them to be safe. It's, it's every parent's dream to have a, a safe environment for their children so that they can thrive. And that's what I do. And as an extension of my son and my daughter, I, I pray for the same thing for and have action behind those prayers. The same thing for your children, for everybody's children out there. Everybody is an extension of, of my family. That's the way I look at it. So this book was written with that intent to teach us 
through my stories, how to build relationships, including the one with law enforcement. Now, now, is this a book that's still available through Amazon and, and some of the other uh, book distributions? If so, tell our audience the name of the book and, and how they can get it. So the book, we have complete control of the book. I self-published it and I donated all the proceeds to our not-for-profit. So the not-for-profit can send you the book. Um, our not-for-profit is called Dedication to Community, dedicationtocommunity.org. And you can buy the book. You can donate to the organization on that, on that site. And, um, and that's, that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted, I wanted that to be a piece of the not-for-profit that we founded years ago to unite society. How do we create these relationships? And uh, the book is, you know, it has a provocative name, a provocative title, um, and I can tell you why. Uh, so for years, my family and friends and clients, some clients in the entertainment and sports world will call me at like two, three in the morning and they would be pulled over by the police and they'd say, I'm, I'm pulled over by the police. How do I not get killed? Now, this is a two o'clock in the morning call I would get over and over again because of the fear that some of my friends and colleagues have of the police. And I would give them the list of things to do. I'd say, okay, this is what you do. And I would tell them, roll down your windows, make sure you have your interior lights on, take yeah. the key out of the ignition after turning yeah. it off, put it on the dashboard or the, or the roof of the car, keep your hands at 10 and two, take off your sunglasses, turn off the radio. Please don't make any movement without asking permission. I would give them this rundown, just hoping that they would remember a few of them mm -hmm. and would, would do everything right. And uh, so then after I wrote this essay that turned into a book, I said, I got to call it something. So what am I going to call it? And I said, well, given what everybody's been asking me over the last 20 years, I'm going to call it How Not to Get Killed by the Police. So that's the name of the book. Excellent. It's Excellent. The survival, a, a survival guide, How Not to Get Killed by the Police, part one. So excellent title. And again, it, it adorns my my uh, my desk and I look at it every now and again because it's so important. You know, I have younger brothers and uh, younger sister and nephews and cousins. And so it's so important to be able to educate them and make them aware of, you know, what what procedures, what processing you need to have in your mind uh, when you get pulled over so that nothing escalates. Um, you are a person, uh, and I'm so happy to kind of unveil you a little bit <laughs> to a wider audience, but you have gone across the country, uh, and you've also done this for the FBI, educating law enforcement officers on engagement, right? And, and what might be in the mind of a young African-American male, uh, you know, from a particular background, neighborhood, you know, economic status, how to approach them you know, to give both sides of the, of the mirror, right? To, so that there is understanding and that lives can be saved because of it. Because so that nobody goes in with a bias and, you know, things escalate unnecessarily and then loss of life happens. And then, you know, you have this kind of chaotic response to it from the community. So given what happened with George Floyd, Tell us some of the messaging that you were providing to those people that you provide training for in the law enforcement arena. 
Well, um, so we, we want to strike at each uh, piece of the equation, law enforcement and the community at large. We train law enforcement and we educate and engage with the community too. And they, we do it with both of them present. That's mm-hmm. what's so important. These are safe spaces where we educate and facilitate these discussions that lead to action. And if we don't have action, meaning change of policy or the execution of different strategies, then all the discussion in the world doesn't matter. There has to be action. So with law enforcement, we, we, the messaging we give them is, this is not about policing. This is about serving. I don't use the word policing as a verb because policing harkens back to a time when law enforcement started in this nation. Law enforcement started with slave patrols. Mm-hmm. And when I speak to people across the nation, they oftentimes tell me that the word policing reminds them of just that, supervising and overseeing. So we don't use the word policing as a cultural piece to what we do when we facilitate. We use serving. It's serving in the 21st century. It's not policing in the 21st century. How do we get folks to serve better, not to police better? And so that's the overall message for law enforcement. And for communities, the overall message is compliance. Just comply. Like 99.9% of the time, if you comply, you're going to end up in a better situation than if you didn't. There are those, I mean, they're rarities, but they are there when no matter what you do, there's a law enforcement officer who's unprofessional and shouldn't be on the job. And that has to be brought to the attention. We tell you to comply and complain. So complain later, file a report at every level, federal on down to the local, so that we can establish that there's a pattern in practice, certain law enforcement officers to behave in a way that is not conducive to building relationships, but is unprofessional. So that's, those are the two messages, comply, to, to for those who are in society and serve, serve, don't police those who are law enforcement officers. Um, so one of the things that I have to bring up, I would be remiss if we didn't mention is uh, D2C and you mentioned it already dedicated to community. And I was able to see the debut of a film that you create, a documentary that we're hoping will be released so that the world can see it in on a number of different platforms. Talk a little bit about that, uh, that movie, that film, that documentary. Uh, I know it's near and dear to your for a number of reasons. And then talk to us on a broader scale about uh, the purpose of D2C and its role in making sure that we continue to reconcile uh, our communities. Well, D2C was, was um, founded for the purpose of getting folks to both uh, survive, to be safe, public safety is one of our initiatives, and then to thrive, to reach their potential. Uh, we we um, deal a lot with upward economic mobility and how do we get people from that lower third into one of the upper thirds of economic status? So moving people in that direction is very important, but first we have to make sure that folks are safe. I mean, if you're safe, you have a chance in life. If you're not safe, there's gonna be a big struggle. So 
D2C spends a lot of time on public safety issues. And the law enforcement community relations initiative is a part of that public safety uh, issue. Overall, the umbrella issue for D2C is justice. We want justice. We want people to, to feel like they're living in a uh, society with equity, systemic fairness. And, and so that's what we concentrate on. We, um, we do a lot of work across the, the nation and, and even globally because we teach at the FBI National Academy. So we have international students who come take our courses. And we, we also do things uh, where we guide, help to guide communities and cities in the rebuilding process. One of those cities is Yonkers, New York, where we work with the Yonkers Public School System, Yonkers Police Department, Yonkers um, Benevolent Association, which is the union for the, the police officers, to try to rebuild Yonkers. Yonkers has always been a place where there have been certain struggles. I grew up there, but it's making this comeback because of great people. And D2C is working in that regard to help Yonkers in that comeback. We, we, um, we actually produced a film about it. It's a 15 minute short called I Got Your Back. We just sold it, as a matter of fact, to Vire Net, the Vire Network, B-Y-R-E, and you can go to watchvire.com and you'll, you'll see it there. And so we have this partnership with the Vire Network and they're in 116 countries. And this, this is about football and how football is rebuilding Yonkers. High school football is rebuilding Yonkers, bringing law enforcement and the community together. It's a powerful film. Yes, it is wonderful. And one thing I want to make sure that we point out about D2C and what you've done, this was a collaboration between uh, the superintendent of schools, you know, uh, the fire chief, the police chief, uh, uh, the, the community. Uh, there was testimony about how young men who at some point before they started engaging in this in this particular project, I Got Your Back project, had a certain ideal of what police were, as you stated earlier. And then, there, you know, the police were honest enough to tell us about what they thought about the community and the young uh, African-American uh, men uh, and how those concepts and those perspectives were able to be changed so that you have this connection in the community. I think that is so powerful. I think we need more of that. Uh, I think that it is something that could be replicated, uh, as you said, globally. How does that make you feel to know that you were able to weave together all of those factions and to change the minds of people who, in the effort to make people feel safe and at the end of the day, save lives? Well, you know, I'm just a small part of this. Dedication to the community is just a small part of it. There are so many folks and organizations that came together in Yonkers, for example, to make this happen, this rebuilding process happen. The superintendent of schools, Edwin Casada, Edwin I mean, he put his career on the line to make this happen with the police and the Yonkers public school system. It's, it's that kind of calculated risk that was taken by people in leadership positions that make this made this happen between the head coach Dan DiMatteo and the commissioner of the police force commissioner Muller John Muller 
and Keith Olson, the, the PBA president, all these people came together to make this happen. I played a role in the background and so did D2C in helping. And then we chronicled it and, and produced this film. But man, the, the boots on the ground work were done by these folks who every day are shaping the lives of our youth. And, you know, I just applaud them. They're, they're the ones who are doing this thing. Uh, it, it's an honor just to have been a small part of it. So Quentin, on the Black Lives Matter radio show, uh, hoping I have a tradition. Uh, I kind of set you up, I tee you up, <clears throat> I get as much um, information as I can for the listeners so that they understand what our guests bring to the community as a whole and, and to our nation as a whole. And then once I do that, then as we begin to close, uh, I give Hope the last question. So uh, in keeping with our tradition and being the first show of 2021 and really having a hopeful outlook on what 2021 is going to bring versus what we had to endure through 2020, I give the last question of the evening to Hope. Hope, over to you. Thank you so much, both of you. Well, I'm so thrilled to have been in the room while you two were talking this evening. It's really magnificent. And Quentin, you know, I, I just want to ask you, this is, <laughs> I hope this comes out the right I intended, but are you so proud of yourself? <laughs> like you have just like rocked this so hard. I mean, Tony initially said you were one of his role models and I absolutely see why. I assume that you are a role model to many, many, many people. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm more proud of the people, the relationships I have. I'm more proud of the things that the folks around me are accomplishing and that I can even be a part of what they're doing. Like, you know, what you and Tony are doing is, is nothing short of extraordinary by, by exposing great things to the world, things that may, maybe the general public don't know about. So that that's my greatest glory in life is the relationships that I have. I, I owe it all to my mother. My mother is this powerful woman, you know, growing up uh, in, in an abusive household where she was being abused by somebody in her own, her own household, and then uh, having the ability to raise two children. My mother's a white Jewish woman, so raising two black boys during some challenging times in our nation. I was during the post-civil rights era, and to be able to teach us that there's good in people, uh, I mean, that, these are the kinds of people who I then became affiliated with because of her example, because I modeled those people after what I expected out of my mother. And so Jay Brussman, he's a guy who, who truly cared about me, and he shaped my life in many ways. I have so many of those folks, some whom uh, Tony knows, Kevin Lewis. Uh, these are people I must have. 50 people, like, which is the, the blessing of a lifetime. So if I'm going to be proud of something, I'm proud of all of that. I'm proud of the people who are around me. Yeah, very proud of that. Well, I'm sure they're all proud of you. And as a Jewish mother myself, I can tell you that there's <laughs> nothing that means more to us than our yeah. children. It's a cultural thing. Actually, I'm friends with, good friends with a lovely woman named Helen, Ellen Harper, who's the mom of Ben Harper. She's another Jewish woman who had three black sons and her husband had an alcohol problem and 
there actually is a new book coming out from her that I'll share with you. Um, but it's sort of this power of joining these communities together, these really strong, powerful, heartful communities that is um, an honor to be part of for sure. So a couple more questions though, because I, I don't want you, I don't want to finish yet. Um, so tell us a little bit about what's on the horizon for you. You've accomplished so very much. So what's, what's coming? Well, so I'm, I'm in this position in life at 55 where I actually know my calling. And we, we are in this, this search through our journey as human beings for our calling. Some people find it, it's always under our nose, but some people find it, some people don't. Um, I actually found it with some time left and that's, a thrill to me because I know why I'm here. I know my purpose in life. And my purpose in life is to take all of that which was adorned on me, uh, these experiences that we talked about, and allow, allow that information, that education to then help people. And that's what we do with Dedication to Community. Uh, we we gain we get all of these relationships that I've had together. They all have stories that are supreme to mine, and those stories are then given to the public, and the public then benefits because now we have an educated public who can survive and thrive in another way. So my calling is really what's, what's uh, taking me to my next phase. And that is to help folks to survive and thrive. And D2C is, is just that. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the method for, for uh, providing this information to the public. That's beautiful. And we're very excited to share your book with um, our viewers and our listeners at the Incandescent Network. Um, we have two magazines, Incandescent Women and Incandescent Health and Wellness and Incandescent Radio and our TV channel on YouTube, Incandescent TV. So we're going to help you spread the word as best we can for sure. And one other thing that I'd love to invite you to do, um, a new radio show on the Incandescent Radio Network in 21 is going to be called Voices for Change by an amazing filmmaker named Tracy Schott out of, she's based in Pennsylvania. And her film five years ago is Finding Jen's Voice. And she is about putting an end to domestic violence. And we are proud, very proud to be her PR partner. And so we would love to have you on that show because one of her um, missions is to help train law enforcement uh, officers and healthcare workers as well uh, to be more aware of domestic violence because sometimes it's not paid attention to in the way that women need that it to be. So we would love to have you on that show as well, um, if you're willing, and we'll just keep the, keep the love going. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, that would be my pleasure, my honor. Great, great. Well, Tony, do you have more questions? Because we're gonna have to have Quentin back on and talk. We gotta have about Quentin back on. Um, Quentin, the the burden of being a fantastic guest is that you got to come back. <laughs> so, so, so just, you know, look for us to send you an invitation on uh, a Sunday evening when you're not doing much and uh, you're not crazy busy, but um, we, we thank you so much that I, I have to give people an opportunity to reach out to you if 
they want to help in some way. So if there's some donors out there, if there's some people who want you to come speak to their law enforcement officers in their community, if there's some people who want you to come speak to their athletes, if there are some people that want you to form some of the, the relationships that you've been able to form in other communities and theirs, how do they contact you? How do they reach out to you? How do they get the benefit of your wisdom for their own community and their own efforts? Well, I, I would just say simply, uh, I'm on social media. So I'm on four main types of social media, but two I use more than the other, or three I use more than the others. So Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter I use the most. Instagram, I'm on, but I don't check it too often. But if you want to go to our website, dedicationtocommunity.org, dedicationtocommunity.org, you'll be able to contact uh, us through and me through through that website easily. If not, you can just send me a message on uh, social media, and we will we will get right back to you. Um, so it, we appreciate everything that anybody wants to do for D two C. I would suggest that website has some great information. You can see what we're doing, and then take it from there. We uh, we appreciate the advocacy and support though. Outstanding. Hope that's all I have for Quentin. Quentin knows he's going to get a, another uh, audience with me here in the in next month or so, and, and we will definitely invite him back for uh, a show uh, later on down the road. But thank you again so much. I can't thank you enough. You have done so much for me uh, professionally and uh, just in helping me kind of outline some of my goals and, and the paths to, to accomplishing them. So thank you again. And uh, hope over to you. Well, thank you both. That's wonderful. And there'll be links in the liner notes on everything so that people can find, all of the excited people can find this wonderful man and his amazing work. And we just, I just thank you both for this wonderful conversation this evening. So you are listening to Black Lives Matter radio show on the Incandescent Radio Network. It is January 3rd, 2021, and we were very much looking forward to a wonderful year. Thank you, Quentin, and thank you, Tony, for launching it this evening. All right, we'll talk to you all soon. So that's all for today's episode of the Black Lives Matter radio show on incandescentradio.com. We have an amazing lineup of future guests, just like you heard on today's show. So be sure to tune in for another episode and tell your friends about us so they can listen too. If you or someone you know should be a guest on our show, send me an email, hopecatsgibbs at gmail.com, and we'll be in touch. Again, this is blacklivesmatterradioshow.com on the Incandescent Radio Network. We look forward to talking to you. Until then, stay safe and be well.